Our scripture reading this morning is taken from Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13, and it can be found in page 830 of your pew Bible. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no, no oil with them, but the wise took flask of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and, f and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. It's the word of the Lord. <clears throat> About four uh, years ago, I heard, um, I guess, a relatively young pastor up in Nashville, uh, Tennessee, a guy named Elliot Cherry, um, do an exposition on this passage that I found so insightful that I thought I would pass along some of the insights from that to you this morning. I always try to, sometimes I like to do that because I want you to realize that God is actually raising up faithful ministers in the next generation. Uh, and I, I find Elliot one of the more insightful. You need to hunt down his podcast. It's really, really good. Uh, but I'm sort of riffing off some of his uh, 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 insights this morning uh, by way of just full disclosure. But I was also so gratified that last week Melvin introduced us to this idea that oftentimes during Christmas we're looking back on what happened uh, uh, on Christmas Day, which is perfectly appropriate. But we also realized, Melvin told us, that really the, more the, more, the greatest preoccupation, as it were, of the New Testament is what's coming ahead of us. In other words, it's not so much Jesus' first advent that we get more excited about in the New Testament, but his second advent and his return that occupies the imagination of these New Testament writers. And so I thought we would do the same this morning, just like we did last week, was to look ahead to the way Jesus helps his people repair for, prepare for his return, especially in Matthew 25 in the passage that Johnny just read. And I think that the reason why I want to do this is simply because, once again, I find that when I talk with you about the anticipation and the things coming for Christmas, that you're very much like me, that for all of the nostalgia that we want Christmas to be, there's almost always, and for weirdly enough, it's the older that you get, there's always this strain running through Christmas that just lacks hope. There's a cynicism that comes around us in, in Christmas time. A lot of it's because we get around and we have family gatherings. And let's be honest, the older that you get, the more aware you are of who's not there. Sometimes it's people that have passed away. Sometimes it's people that, for whom the family is estranged. Sometimes Christmas time is the time in which we remember the heartbreak that I suffered in the years before. 
Sometimes Christmas is a time of anticipating a lot of seasonal dreariness as the weather turns cold and winter sort of looms ahead of us. But what it does is it oftentimes adds up to us a time in which Christmas can be really depressing. But I want to submit to you that Jesus actually knows all of this. And what he wants to do in his earthly ministry is to give his people a sense of hope as they deal with what's coming ahead, as they deal with their unknown futures, as they deal with their own memories. And so the essence of that hope, he says, is learning how to wait. There is a whole lot, and I'm actually inspired by this uh, study to actually do a little bit more work on the way the Bible deals with what it means to wait and the particular quality of waiting. God's people over and over again are called to do a lot of waiting. And so Jesus is going to illustrate what it means to wait well by, ta- by seizing upon a very common ancient Near Eastern practice of the way in which weddings were done and the way in which people got engaged. Uh, Elliot mentioned in his sermon on this that during his, uh, pre, during his marriage counseling, he never sat with someone who ever had nostalgia towards being engaged. Oh, man, if we could only go back to those days of being engaged. <laughs> Nobody wants that because it's a period of waiting. No one wants to go back to those times because waiting is hard. And so Jesus takes up this image of these weddings and to, uses them to show us exactly what Christian waiting looks like. And what Christian hope looks like. So three ideas uh, this morning. We're going to look first of all at the tradition of the weddings, uh, the practice of waiting, and then finally uh, the hope of the future as we try to make some application. So the tradition of weddings. Uh, look, Look at verse 25, verse 1. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Okay, notice the tense of that verb. The kingdom will be like. In other words, Jesus most of the time is describing what the kingdom is like because he's bringing the kingdom. That's how you're going to know that it's here. But in Matthew 25, as he prepares for his inevitable death, he says, but now I want you to understand your expectation of the kingdom. In other words, the kingdom has already come, but it's going to come more fully in the future. And so therefore, I want to ask you about how it is that you are longing for that. Jesus knew that his followers would be wanting to see him finally bring in the fullness of everything that he was about, especially as it pertained to their salvation as a people. But he also knows, because he is fully God, that the kingdom never comes on your timetable. So therefore, God's people are going to have to learn how to wait Waiting, as it turns out, was a very common experience for people in that culture when it came to weddings. And so Jesus seizes upon this cultural practice in order to make an illustration out of it. So a little bit of research here, and I'm really thankful Elliot did this work here. First of all, you've got to understand that weddings during that day were mostly arranged. The groom's family would negotiate for a bride, and the bride was actually presented with the idea. Now, Contrary to some popular uh, sort of late last couple century practices, the bride we know was not actually forced to accept the choice of the, or the, the invitation of the groom's family. Rather, there was an arrangement where the bride could either accept or reject the groom. And it went like this. The potential groom would go to the bride's house and he would present her with a cup of wine. 
And she could either take the cup of wine and drink it, in which case she accepted his uh, initiation of, uh, uh, of marriage, or she could refuse it and send him home sad, uh, presumably. But thus began the engagement process. And the engagement process was a very indeterminate amount of time when the groom would head back home. And what he would do when he was there was he would begin to construct a room for he and his bride to live in. Most of the time, this was a room that would be constructed on the side of his present home. And the groom would spend the next, however long it took, hard at work on finishing this new addition to his uh, house so that he could go back, get his wife, and bring her back into live in the new room. Romantic, right? There's a Hallmark movie somewhere in that story. And so the father of the groom, interestingly enough, was in charge of inspecting the groom's work. Ultimately, he was the one who only could sign off and say, yes, you got it right, son. Now it's time. He would say when everything was ready. And when he did, he would look at his son and say, now's the time to go get your bride. Okay, I don't think you have to be a theologian to understand the parallels Jesus was drawing, especially in places like John 14, 3, when he said, behold, I go and prepare a place for you. See what he's seizing upon? That's the tradition he was building off of. But by now, you got to understand, the whole town is buzzing. It's buzzing with anticipation. When will the groom come and get the bride? When will he be here? And of course, there's this anticipation that's building, mostly because the groom oftentimes would take a little bit of joy in trying to surprise the bride. He would wait for a certain amount of time. He would oftentimes come at night in order to make a surprise. And so because there was a, a waiting period involved and you never knew what was happening, the bride would often find bridesmaids. Now, we have lots of bridesmaids tradition, traditions in our weddings these days, but those bridesmaids had a very different role. Their job was to stay ready and to watch out for the groom. And if they saw him, they were to race back in and get the bride prepared for when he was to, to, to show up. And they stayed there prepared. Of course, this, that when finally the groom did show up, there was a huge feast that would happen. Like literally almost sometimes for weeks it would happen. The whole village together would rejoice in what was going on. <clears throat> you know, here's what was super weird about that culture. In that particular culture, the bride was not the center of the attention early on, especially in the engagement. It was the groom. The preoccupation was, when will he be here? Everyone's waiting for the groom. Everyone's looking to say, has he completed his house yet? Is he going to have a place for her to stay? And he would make all these preparations to come at a time in which they wouldn't expect. And so therefore these bridesmaids were told to be ready at all times. So look, you don't have to be a biblical scholar to see Jesus' point here. Jesus' followers were just like the bridesmaids. But in the interest of the story, he says that there were actually two different kinds of bridesmaids. There were some that were quite wise, but then there were others that were quite foolish. Kind of an interesting thought because prior to the bride coming or the groom coming, you didn't know which group was in which. You didn't realize who was on whose particular side of the wisdom issue there. And so often what happened then, when the big moment came, you began to see this powerful difference between two different kinds of bridesmaids. Because in the story, there were those who did not keep their oil prepared. And because they didn't keep their oil prepared, they were left empty-handed. 
The wise, however, they had it ready. And so therefore the point of the story is pretty straightforward. The point of the parable is we have to be ready. Every Christian, Jesus is saying, is to be a person who is watching the times, to be a person who is watching themselves, to be a person who is making preparations. Why? Because you don't know when he's coming back. You don't know when the groom will appear. And so therefore, there is waiting. (laughs) Elliot makes this point that at this point, this is the moment when most Christians really misinterpret this passage and misread it. And we mostly do it in highly what we would call moralistic ways. You know what I mean by that? That means we think of it in terms of just like the behaviors, the things that we're doing. We're like, okay, it's a good point, preacher. I got to be ready. I certainly don't want Jesus to return right after I just yelled at my kids on Christmas morning. Not that that happened to anybody here in the room. I mean, I don't want, you know, Jesus to return before I've kind of, you know, worked things out with this person that I've had this argument with all this time. I hope Jesus doesn't return, you know, when I'm sinning, right? Because then I won't get to go to heaven, right? That is not the point of this story. What Jesus is highlighting, rather, is that there is a quality of waiting that is unique among those who know him well versus those who are believing a different story about him. That is, the difference between the wise and the foolish is not that the wise are like super holy and therefore they get to go to heaven (laughs) and that the foolish are sinners. That is not the point. The difference is that what is in their hearts only gets revealed when you begin to see how they are waiting. How they wait upon the Lord says everything about what they think about the groom. That's the point of the story that we see in the tradition of these weddings, which brings me nicely into the second point, and that is the practice of waiting. Because Jesus is simply saying that there is a direct connection between the quality of your waiting and the condition of your heart towards the groom. That was what we call the theme of the sermon right there. I'll say it again. There is a direct connection between the quality of my waiting and the condition of my heart towards the groom. Think about this. If the wise bridesmaids had said, you know what? I'm willing to wait as long as I need to because I believe what he says, then they would have prepared accordingly. But the fact that some were not prepared shows that these foolish bridesmaids tip their hand about what they think about the groom. Does that make sense? So there's wise waiting, and then there's foolish waiting. What's the difference? Well, the foolish waiting, I think what we see from this text is, I wait foolishly, when I, when, I, when, when I show that I really don't care too much for the groom. It really does have to do with my attitudes towards the groom that show whether I'm wise or foolish. And honestly, this is the moment in which during the story I start to be like, I resonate with the foolish bridesmaids. I do. In, in a moment of full disclosure, I resonate with them because waiting is long. It's hard to wait. And in the midst of that waiting, it's very easy to begin to believe something different. In other words, in the midst of our waiting, one of the greatest struggles and temptations is to recast what you think the groom is thinking about you. That's the problem with waiting. It might be that for the foolish bridesmaids, they don't only need one lamp of oil or we're not prepared for the right amount of oil. 
Because they're convinced that the groom is going to come back on their terms. This is the presumption idea, right? It's like, well, you know, I'm going to God because when I go to God, he's going to give me the better life that I want. And when I get my better life, he will come and deal with my life the way in which I would like him to. You know, forget all this carefulness and watchfulness. Doesn't he understand how hard I'm trying? Or doesn't he understand how terrible my life has been up until this point? Surely he's going to have pity on me. In other words, what we become is the kind of people that are trying to force God's hand by the ways in which he's withheld from me in the past. Or maybe because I feel like I've been good. What is this showing, by the way? It's showing that the foolish bridesmaid simply does not trust that the groom has their best interest at heart, which is why I have to force his hand. The second option that I also resonate with is because it may very well be that the bridesmaids have already decided about the intentions of the groom. <laughs> you ever thought about this? Maybe the bridesmaids are thinking to herself, I mean, where is that goof? This is ridiculous. It's been this long. You know what? What if he's found somebody else? I mean, I'm just saying. What, what, what if his heart towards the bride has changed? What if some of the things that he said and promised or he's actually changed his heart about? In other words, they may be concerned that he's abandoned them. I really do love the way Elliot puts this so powerfully. He says, look, in our waiting we inevitably construct stories about what we believe about the heart of the groom. Do we not? While we wait on Jesus, what we do is we begin to create these mental pictures of his intentions towards us. We construct these, these visions of his reactions towards me. We get convinced that he's forgotten. Maybe we get convinced that he's indifferent. Maybe that's really what God is like. He really just stands up there and doles out his will in whatever way he wants. Or maybe we think that he's angry. The groom has grown angry with me. He's not coming back for me. Maybe he doesn't want to marry me at all. I saw a hilarious TikTok recently where a man was complaining uh, to his wife who was being very, yes, I watch TikTok videos. I, I, I looked at some of your faces being like, it's hilarious. <clears throat> There's this woman who woke up and she was really, really angry with her husband, right? And really ticked off at him. And he was like, what is wrong with you? Well, she explained to him that the night before while she was sleeping, she had had a dream about him. And in the dream, he had cheated on her. And the dream apparently was so vivid that she woke up still mad at him. And he was like, what is wrong with you? I didn't do anything. Why are you still angry with me? And I thought that is a perfect illustration because what these foolish bridesmaids have done is they have begun to believe this certain narrative about the groom that is false. The difference though between the wise bridesmaids is they've made a decision to simply stick with what the groom said. He said he returned and I believe him. That's how they reasoned. And they realized that that's all I need to know. And their preparation for his return was proved in the quality of their waiting. In other words, you know that you are waiting well when you have a narrative about the groom in your head that's actually leading you back to trust him. That's the key. 
You know you are waiting well when the story that you are believing about the groom inside your head is actually leading you back into further trust. So the question this morning is this, what story have you weaved in your imagination about Jesus this morning? In your longing for a life to be like what it was when you were a child, back when Christmas was magical, have you reconstructed Jesus' authority over you into something that is less than what he said that it was? Is there something at the heart of that story that fears that he's done with you? Because if that's the case, you're not going to wait well. You become a poor waiter. The reason why I love this imagery is, is because it gets us thinking not so much about our faithfulness. <laughs> Christmas is so moralistic, isn't it? You know, have you been a good boy or girl? It's whether Santa will bring you any gifts or not. No, what it does is it turns our focus to asking ourselves the question, what then is the true heart of the groom? What does he really feel for me? What does he say for me? What is he really thinking? And how can I know it? And we have to sit with the wise bridesmaids and trust that he's not forgotten us, even though we often forget him. Okay, finally, a couple points of application here about the hope for the future. How does this speak to us? Elliot mentions in the sermon how, how dangerous it is to misunderstand the parable because it's not saying, okay, for those people that wait well, you're the ones that get to be Christians and go to heaven. It's not the point of it. What it's saying is, it's not saying to us, God's going to give you sort of a good life with well-adjusted children in a house in the suburbs as long as you're a good wait for a person who waits for him well. In other words, if I behave this way, God has to give me the life that I want. That's that, that's that attempt to coerce God into good behavior idea. Now, how you wait depends upon what you think you're waiting on. If I'm unwilling to sit in the tension of waiting, it means that somewhere along the way, I've stopped getting excited about meeting the groom. And why is that the case? That's the question. Why is that the case? If I've stopped getting excited, maybe these foolish bridesmaids, when they react to their lack of oil, isn't it interesting that instead of going to the groom and simply confessing their lack of preparedness, where do they go? They go to the wise bridesmaids. Oh, help us. Help us here. What does that show? They're still afraid to meet the groom. Why is it that they're afraid to meet the groom? I think it's for the same reasons that I was afraid to meet the groom, especially when I was in high school and college. I oftentimes reflect on this season because it was summed up for me, I've said this many times, in the Far Side cartoons. Bear with me. Little one-panel Far Side cartoons were hilarious to me. My favorite of all time is the one that has the little man who has just arrived in heaven. You know that because he's sitting on a cloud and he has wings and a harp. But there's also a little thought bubble above his head that says, you know, I wish I'd brought a magazine. What's he mean? He means that being in heaven, here I am with my harp and whatever else, but there's not that much to do. And it was thoughts like that that used to lead me to ask Bible teachers around me, having grown up in church, what are we going to do in heaven? The idea and the prospect of being there forever seemed a little daunting to me. What are we going to do while we're there? And, of course, I believe they answered me rightly when they said, well, we're going to spend an eternity praising God. And I remember thinking, huh, anything else? 
other than that? Because in my mind, <laughs> in my mind, I thought that meant an eternity being in church. And for some of you, you're kind of like, it's been too long for me already. <laughs> what does he mean, though, when we say that we're going to be with the Lord? Look, eternity is what, he is, is what it is because we anticipate that he is going to be with us. That's what Emmanuel literally translated means, God with us. Do you remember a couple of years ago when John Cox came uh, uh, down to do our marriage and parenting conference? And he said that with is God's favorite preposition. I love that. With. That's what God intends for us. If we don't long for Jesus' return, it's little wonder that I'm unmotivated or, or sort of disinterested at the thought of his first coming. I find this to be an interesting searching thought. Could it be that my ambivalence surrounding Christmas is not so much because it's all been so commercialized? I don't like it because of all the cheesy nostalgia people attached to Christmas these days. Maybe that's not it. Maybe it's because I've never seen or found anything in Jesus that would make me want to see him come again. Or maybe I've forgotten. Or maybe I'm waiting poorly. Maybe I have written a false story about him in my heart. I mean, that's reason in verse 10 when it says, the bridegroom came and those who are ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. All of eternity is what it is for a Christian because it's being with Jesus. And if that has no meaning for me, it may not be that necessarily I've done something wrong. That, of course, is true. But it may be just that I've missed something along the way. That I missed something. Because to know him is to love him. Knowing him means that he is helping me to wait well. He is there slowly refilling my lamp to keep me prepared for his coming. How? Well, think about the ritual of, of engagement from the story before. You know, when the bride took the wine from the groom's invitation, it was her way of saying, yes, I will wait for you. And that means every single time we come to the Lord's table, which we're going to do in about two weeks here at this church, we reaffirm, do we not? We come to the table to accept the cup from the groom again and again, over and over again, because Jesus is in that moment reaffirming his intention that I am coming, I'm going to scoop you up again, and I'm going to pledge myself to marry you all over again. I love this. There's a sense in which the table is not so much our celebration of him as it is his celebration of us. That's the imagery. He's there. He's coming. He, he's there to comfort us. He's there to show us that I still love you. I used to say to all my pre-marriage counseling people that every week of being married is another week of threatening to break my vows. Because everything tears us apart. Our jobs tear us apart. Our interests tears us apart. Our age tears us apart. Our children tear us apart. There's always these things that are threatening to, to pull the inertia away. And God says, look, I'm going to come and give you this, this, this sacrament that affirms for you that I'm still here. So the question is, what if this Christmas we got fixated on where we're going, on who's returning? Wouldn't that make us a bit more patient? I'm one of those people who, who happens to have married one of the kindest people I know. And I actually know a lot of people. I'm 55. I know a lot of people. I don't know anybody as kind as my wife. She's just that kind of person. I'm also the kind of person who prior to having met Ginger, 
let's, let's just say, made more mistakes in relationships than there are able to be positively made. I promise you. I promise you. I, I would put myself up there against anybody. And there may be some out there in the world who know it better than even uh, I do. But I've often said this. If I knew that Ginger was somewhere out there in my distant future, I wouldn't have made as many mistakes. If I knew that that was at the end of one's great searching, <laughs> I would have waited differently. So my question is, what if that's your greatest need this morning? To know that the one who waits for you is better than you think. That he loves you more than you think. That he cares for you more than you think. And what if his intentions are to take all of those little failures that you've suffered and to weave them together into a resolution that is so sweet that as the hymn writer says, eternity will be too short to utter all of his praise. What if that ends up being the meaning of Christmas for us? Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, would you guide us and lead us into that very revelation? Because quite frankly, there's so much distraction. We rarely, we rarely see it. There are things inside of our heart that distract us. There are things inside of our, our, our lives, our, our marriages, our families screaming at us to depress us during a time in which we're supposed to look with wonder. Father, we ask for childlike wonder, not because there's gifts under a tree, but because we look around us and realize that there is magic in the world. There is magic in the world because you are at work through your love. There's nothing, there's nothing more sentimental. There's nothing more beautiful than that you are coming to take back your bride. And as we look back on your coming, may we look forward to your future coming, knowing that that's what we have in store for us, that you still love us. If you would give us a sense of that, Father, we'd walk away changed. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.